This morning's scripture passage is taken from two passages in uh, Matthew's Gospel. First from uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and then turning to chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. So first from chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point in the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. Then turning to chapter 6, verse 16. And when you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, as people, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face, then no one will notice you are fasting, except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't uh, know me, my name's Greg. I'm just going to grab one more thing over here. Okay. Now, before we uh, get into our focus for the day, um, I thought it was important to first acknowledge where many of us find our hearts and our minds of this time, and of course, um, that is uh, on Russian's attack on Ukraine. And uh, it is striking that the Christian season of Lent, and you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Lent is the time of the Christian year where we turn ourselves 
towards Jesus' journey towards the cross. And so it is striking, both figuratively and literally, that the season of looking to the cross has become with great, has begun with great violence. We are bearing witness to brother warring against brother, a story that goes back, you know, to Cain and Abel, the very beginning of the Bible, sister against sister. And sadly, this same story humanity has been telling for our entire history of human greed and power, uh, greed for land, the great cost that is always borne by the majority who has nothing to gain from it, but who can only have to gain the loss of home and safety and, and increased hatred and division for the other that stirs up within us. And in this case, the cost of violence is most borne, of course, by the Ukrainian peoples, though it is also significantly borne by Russian civilians as well. And regardless of whether they've bought into state propaganda or not. Like the expansion of every empire in the history of humanity, the powerful seeking more power is played out with violence upon the, the powerless. And this is exactly why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus himself, fully God of infinite power and strength, gave that all up to become human. And God and Jesus went to the cross where he literally bore the violence of human humanity, the violence of power and greed. He bore it upon his body. God's very self is in the very midst of those who are suffering under the violence of oppressors. And this is part of what we celebrated this morning with communion. And this is so that the world may be offered peace, so that forgiveness and grace could take the place of violence and hoarding of power in our world, so that we who know this truth may live for peace in a violent world. And for most of us, there isn't much that we can do as we face this particular instance of violence. I'd encourage us, of course, to be prayerful. Um, and there are little things we can do, you know, donating to groups who are on the ground in Ukraine and surrounding NATO countries that are bringing human, 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 humanitarian relief to refugees and victims of war. Uh, one of our ministry partners in the Baptist family called uh, Canadian Baptist Ministries, they have a relief fund um, that um, if you're looking for a place, uh, there, theirs is a great place to support uh, where the, the funds are going to uh, humanitarian efforts. Uh, all you have to do is Google CBM Ukraine and it will pop up. Though there's, you know, the Red Cross and many others are making a difference as well. Another thing we can do and how we respond is responding to the small cost that it has here, on, here in Canada. You'd think from the complaining going on in social media that it's a great cost for us, but it's a very actually small cost, such as rising gas prices. For those of us that can afford to pay more in the short term, perhaps instead of complaining, why don't we direct that time and energy to prayer and to advocacy for peace? We can offer support and care to Ukrainian communities in our neighborhoods, and our local shops, but also having an awareness of the evil of racism that is growing against Russians. The violence against Russians' immigrants in Canada and in the States is on the rise, both digitally and physically. And this is also something we must be, not participate in. 
And once again, we are seeking to lash out, but we are doing it against the powerless. Instead of propagating the cycle of hatred and division, let us choose to be pacemakers in the places that we have power and influence, standing against the evils of violence, both against the Ukrainian peoples in this crisis, but also in the evils of violence we see on our own doorsteps and social media feeds, not to mention how many other countries are either war-torn or under the oppression of a tyrannical leader. And of course, pray, pray, pray. Jesus said, in this world we, you will have trouble, but to take heart. I have overcome the world. He has taken the evil of human violence upon his body so that the world might receive the gift of peace and so that we may be peacemakers. So God, we ask that you would bless all who work to make peace, for they will be called your children. All right, and now back to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> I saw a couple head goats up. They're like, all right, oh, he's done. This is awesome. <laughs> Joke's on you. Those of you for whom the season of Lent is a new idea, uh, just it is based on a passage that Garth read for you where Jesus fasted and prayed in the desert for 40 days. Now, of course, most of us, if we've looked at the Bible, we know that 40 days isn't probably a literal number, but a, a picture of a really long time. And this is why fasting is a traditional spiritual practice for us during this season. Acts of self-denial and prayer to express outwardly and to enact within our bodies the reality that, as, uh, as we heard, that people cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it is so that we can choose to worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. And that the treasure of our hearts is not to be what we store up on earth, that like Jesus, our fasting and our prayer is to be done humbly, not like hypocrites who do it to get attention, but as a humble and private act of worship to a humble God. Now, this being said, and I, and I think there's a reason why Jesus said when you fast, not if you fast. I think there is something really powerful and spiritual uh, to the practices of fasting. But something that is misunderstood about the season of Lent in general, and I think the spiritual practice of fa fasting and of simplicity specifically, is that they are actually not about giving up everything that is enjoyable or that gives pleasure, as if some sort of self-caused suffering is a way to beat our bodies into being either good enough for God or as if God uh, delights in our kind of self-caused suffering. This is not what it is about. Lent and fasting is meant to be uh, something different. And I really appreciate the way um, author Kimberly Conway Ireton, and she writes in her books, The Circle of Seasons. She writes this. The point of Lent isn't what we give up, or even if we give anything up. The point is that we are intentionally creating space in our lives for our relationship with God. If our bodies are too full of food or our lives too full of activity, we have no space for God to pour himself into us. And I find this Lenten metaphor of making space for God a really helpful one. 
of changing our perspectives on how we view even what um, um, some of the harder spiritual practices are. Taking the things of our lives that take up space in our hearts and our minds and our spirits and that even take up space in our bodies and setting them aside for a period of time to make space for God to move and to speak. Another metaphor of Lent that I personally connect even more with is the picture of reordering. And I wrote a bit about this in an article for Delve. The metaphor of reordering is one of things being in the right order, of prioritizing the right things over others. And this is why I brought this. It's kind of like these stacking cups. I used to love playing with these with my girls. Do you remember these girls? Yeah. Do you remember that daddy's favorite part is knocking them down? <laughs> so now this is not a perfect metaphor and, uh, at all, but no metaphors are, they all fall apart literally at some point. Um, but if I put them in a good order, in a healthy order, I prioritize the large ones first. It stacks well and it has a strong foundation. But if I prioritize that something that perhaps shouldn't be prioritized, like this orange, the smaller orange cup, I can, you know, I can maybe get things to balance if I'm lucky, and it may hold up for a period of time, but this whole thing is compromised. It way, oh, you know, I, got, I was able to get it to stand like this the other day, and now I can't. But it may stand for a bit, but with any outside force, any strain or unexpected event, it will just tumble over, right? Which is, of course, the best part of these cups, is that uh, they get to tumble. Any strain or outside force will tumble something that is built on an unhealthy foundation. And the point isn't that this cup is a bad cup, right? There's nothing wrong with this cup. It's a good cup. It's just as good as the others. But when I put it in the wrong priority, it actually becomes the thing that breaks the whole, um, the whole tower In the words of St. Ignatius, my favorite saint, when we prioritize the wrong things, he calls it disordered. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, we seek to reorder our relationships with whatever is disordered in our lives. We seek to reorder them Oh, and perhaps not knock them down. I'll just get the three. I'm just getting the three bases of a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right here. Forget the rest of it. I'm just kidding. Oh, thank uh, Here's my lovely assistant. If everyone give your hands. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I won't saw him in half, I promise. It's not that kind of show. We seek to reorder our relationships with whatever is disordered in our lives so that we can live whole and healthy. And the season of Lent and the practices of fasting and simplicity can be tools that give space for God in our lives to help us discern and to live out a healthy reordering in our lives. They're about having healthy relationships with everything in our lives that help lead us towards an abundant life that God desires for us. And throughout Lent, we're going to be spending time contemplating some of the things that many of us have disordered relationships with. 
Now again, these are things are not necessarily bad in themselves, and this is an important for us to remember. In fact, most of the things we're going to be talking about are actually things that have a wonderful and life-giving things in our lives that are gifts from God to enjoy and to bring thanksgiving. They are things that God has given us so that we can have an abundance of life. But it is our relationship to them that corrupts that beautiful gift. And one of the first things that came to our minds, and perhaps the most universally enjoyed pleasures, but can also be one of the most disordered in our lives, is food and alcohol. These past couple of years have been particularly hard for many of us in this regard. Dealing with the pandemic has caused so much trauma and discouragement and fear that many of us have sought to find joy, pleasure, and often escape through alcohol and through food. Now food, as I said, I believe is one of the great gifts that God has given us. And when we make healthy choices about what we eat, it gives us nourishment and energy and strength so that we can work and we can think and so that we can play another gift of God. And in the Bible, food takes an important place in many more ways than simply nutrition. It has a central place to celebration and enjoyment. Food and wine are central to the worship of God in the Old Testament, and I would say in the New Testament. But the Old Testament is through sacrifices, the great worship feasts such as Passover, where a food image that we celebrate as Christians uh, at the Lord's table, a Passover meal that Jesus reordered it to point to himself. Where eating bread and drinking wine become an act of celebrating and receiving the body and blood of Christ, of God itself. Now food, of course, has a central place in the Bible and in our lives. A central place in family and community. Food nourishes our bodies and delights our tongues. And so, in the same way, loving community nourishes and delights the deepest places of our humanity. And we were made to be together and in community and in scripture. And I think a gift of God is that eating together is, is symbolic of that reality, but it's also actually a way of creating that community and enjoying that fellowship and life uh, that deepens reality and life for us that we do in community. But like most good things in life, we have a tendency to take the greatest gifts of God and twist them and disorient them until they become places of brokenness. Oftentimes, the line between ordered and disordered is blurry, and we cross it not with any great force or one great event, but through slow and hidden progressions. And this is something that fasting and simplicity help to break that slow and hidden movement. Now I want to try something. So take a second. I'm not going to ask for any hands or anything, so don't worry about that. Take a second to think of a food or a drink that when you think of it, just bringing it to mind, transport you to that bliss of the experience of eating or drinking it. If you were at our Tuesday pancake dinner, you probably had that experience in either the Chinese or the Korean kimchi uh, pancakes. Those were like, that's what's coming to mind for me. Probably you too, Chloe. Eh? But anyway. So take a moment to think 
of something that brings that experience. You can even, I mean, for me, I have to close my eyes. I'm a visual person, but picture this food or drink. And as you have it, even just thinking about it, you can feel your taste buds almost dancing on the back of your tongue. Or even just thinking of it takes you to that moment of gratification or release. Now, do you have a food or drink in mind? Most of us don't actually have to think about it. It's the first thing that kind of pops into our head. Now, that beautiful moment of joy or pleasure is why God has created our taste buds, I think. I mean, it doesn't say that specifically in the Bible. I'm putting that onto the Bible, but... It is a gift from the giver of all good things. But as you think on that firing of your taste buds, how badly do you want to have some of that food right now? Like, holy cow, I'm really excited to have some again, and I can just taste it? Or is it, I think I'll stop on the store, at the store on the way home and grab some? Or is it, this guy better shut up soon, because i got to get out of here, and i got to get some, and you know... Maybe if I'm lucky, I might have even dropped some under the front seat of the car. <laughs> you know, if that's where you're going, uh, to delight in good things of life is one thing, but when it becomes an insatiable craving that controls our minds and our bodies, this is a sign that we've crossed the line from order to disorder, that we've crossed from receiving and enjoying the beautiful things of God to seeking to put something else in place of God, and to having a disordered relationship with our food. If you can't think of a bag of chips without an intense need to run to the store to get some, or picture the flavor of a Canadian uh, microbrewery IPA (laughs) without needing to chug the first quarter of the can in order to feel that intensity to subside with a release, chances are they ha- it has power over you. Now, as I mentioned, through trauma and challenges of the past couple of years, many of us, you know, like myself, I can't lie, I've sought relief and escape from stress and isolation through instant gratification of consuming something that gives pleasure that takes attention off of stress, even just for a few moments of bliss. I mean, it's understandable, but it's not healthy for us. And there are all kinds of psychological and physiological and sociological reasons why it's not healthy for us. And there's all kinds of great books and blogs and information out on the internet to help us in that way. But this morning, I'm concerned with our relationship with God and how it is impacted by this. And this is where I want to draw our attention And our insatiable cravings, our running to food and alcohol to find peace or pleasure, it has given it a disordered place in our lives. And when we are driven by pleasure and it controls us, we give it more worth than it is due. And do you know what it's called when we give something worth in our lives? It's called worthship. (laughs) Worship. That's what worship means, is worthship, giving worth to something. When we give something undue place in our lives, we are, in fact, worshiping it. Many of us think that uh, the the words like um, 
idols is for kind of an old, old school, Old Testament time. But when we have this disordered relationship with food and we worship it, it becomes an idol because we are going to it rather than God. We worship what we give exalted worth, whether it's the food itself or it's the pleasure or it's that, just that moment uh, of ecstasy or the release, the momentary escape that it offers, our cravings to consume end up consuming us. And as our bodies consume it, it consumes our souls, and it's all for just a momentary moment. And the only thing that remains is the deepening craving, as it takes even more control over us. People cannot live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When food has a proper place in our lives, we give praise to God for it. We delight in it rather than being mastered by it. And these Christian spiritual practices of fasting or simplicity can be helpful tools in helping us to reorient or reorder our relationships, putting God first so that we may worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Another author, Lisa Turquoise, writes this. It is a journey, a straight of Lent, I should say. It is a journey of surrender to God that will usher us from rut-dwelling I love that. How many of you feel like you're rut-dwelling a lot of the time? (laughs) Ushers us from rut-dwelling to transformed living. I I should have just read this quote and then gotten off the platform, actually. To stop that rut of constant inhale, taking in, taking in, taking in, it clogs the soul. So for 40 days, let us learn to exhale with great thanksgiving. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to help us to step out of those ruts and into transformed living. Taking in and taking in clogs the soul like fast food clogs our arteries. We don't see the impact at first, but over time our souls become addicted. We need more and more while inside our bodies more and more we are expediting our own death, both physically and spiritually. Another author, Chris Say, in his book, A Place at the Table, he writes this, We are humans and we have desires. We have cravings and it is not that we shouldn't have them or should feel guilty when we do. But in fasting, we are not engaging in a form of punishment, penance, or holy discipline, but it is a search for clarity. Our goal during these days is not to suppress our desires. Our goal is that our desires no longer drive our lives. It is putting them in correct order. These desires may be healthy, but they may be destructive, or they may simply be revealing of something of who we are. And as he says, as we heighten awareness of these desires, we can seek wisdom and discernment on how to respond. And the act of awareness and acknowledgement is first necessary step in breaking the control it has over us. Now, while there are a ton of different things we can do to reorder the place of food and alcohol in our lives, I'd like to highlight... Is everyone okay? Was that on the roof or below us? 
A piece of ice? Yeah, probably a big piece of ice. That was God saying, pay attention, this is good stuff. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It could also be God saying, shut up, Greg. Anyway, I'd like to highlight one place um, that I think can really help us in our thinking about food, but, but even more uh, in our relationship with God. And it is simply how we say grace over a meal. Many of us, when we come to eat, either by ourselves or most oftentimes with others, we will say grace. We will ask God to bless the food that we are about to eat. But let's think about it this way as we say grace. Now picture yourself, you know, you're about to eat a McDonald's hamburger and fries. Or really, or any fast food. And you say, God, bless this food to my body. We're essentially saying, God, bless this chemically synthesized fat and salt oozing poison that I'm putting in my body. Bless it that it is expediating my death, but as I eat it, may it bring me closer to you, right? Right? Now, it does bring you closer to God, but not kind of in the way that you're probably were thinking, right? Now, I don't, my point isn't to slam Mickey D's, and quite frankly, you know, it's okay to enjoy I don't think there's a sin in enjoying that. I just thought it was probably the most obvious because it is so chemically synthesized fat salt oozing poison that I could think of. But, um, but my point isn't Mickey D's, but simply to refrain our thinking about how and uh, we bless God in our relation to food and how, what we're doing when we say grace. The practice of saying grace over our food in our Christian homes, it actually mostly comes from Jesus' blessing during the Last Supper, that first communion meal. And in Matthew 26, and Abby alluded to, to this, Matthew 26, verse 26 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and gave it to his disciples. Now, this is the NIV. Other English translations will often say, Jesus took bread and blessed it. However, in that original language and of the Greek that it's written in, but I would say probably more importantly, the Jewish table blessings of the time, which some would have been on Hebrew and some would have been in Jewish and perhaps some other languages, depending on where the Jews were living. In the Jewish table blessing, the word it is not there. It does not say Jesus took bread and blessed it. It simply says Jesus took the bread and blessed. And this is because the Jewish blessing that is said at the beginning of a meal, it's called the hamatzi, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong. My apologies. It says this, blessed are you, this is a table grace. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of all who brings forth bread from the earth. That's it. It is very likely that when the Bible says Jesus took bread and blessed, that Jesus is probably saying almost this exact blessing. It is not asking God to bless the bread. It's not saying God bless this bread. It is asking, it is offering a blessing to God for the bread. It is an expression of praise and thanksgiving to God, not just for the bread itself, but also for the earth from which the grain comes. So what if we changed our meal grace from asking God to bless the food we're to consume and instead blessed God for it? It changes the whole thing from being about our 
consumption to being about God's goodness and provision. It changes it from what we get to what God gives. And it opens us from thinking not only of ourselves around the table, but to others and to the earth. Blessing God for the joy of good flavors, for the way our bodies receive nourishment, but also outside of ourselves, blessing God for the truck drivers and for the migrant workers, for the seeds that grow and the human labor that brings it to our homes. And it also opens us to the awareness of the cost of the food, of broken systems of over-farming that depletes the earth, of pesticides and chemicals that poison water and communities, of plastic wrap that literally poisons everything because it's now, as we know, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's in our ground. The sweat equity of farmers and laborers. As we begin to approach our food, not from the lens of our own consumption, but of gratefulness and a desire to bless God and to be a blessing to the world, as we turn from asking for our own blessing to give a blessing to God for the food before us, where the food and God's place at our table can turn from personal consumption to blessing the world, in this small act, we are growing in compassion and in care for others. We are turning a meal from ourselves to worshiping God and blessing others. We grow a desire to give the blessing of food to those who do not have simply from the way we reframe how we ask for God's, how we relate to God's presence at our meals. Now, for some of us who have developed deep or unhealthy attachments to some food, perhaps we'll all uh, well, be blessing, it'll be to bless God as we avoid the dessert table at a buffet or, or a function. Or be able to drive past the LCBO without stopping and blessing God for that, to be able to have abstained for one more day. You see, the reordering nature of Lent and fasting is not to put a heavier yoke or burden on us, but it is to simplify and reorder our affection so that we may live in the unhurried rhythms of God's grace. Lent helps us face what we are, both the brokenness and the beauty, the lies and the truth. And the truth is another donut or beer isn't going to fulfill or sustain. It will let you down. And if allowed, it will pull you more and more away from your true self, more and more away from others around you and from God. The truth is, you are a child of God who is most nurtured and sustained and fulfilled by your Heavenly Father through drink and food that sustains and restores. So let us find our life in this. As the band comes forward, I'm actually going to, I'm going to read the same verse that uh, Jeremy began our worship with. It's Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread or your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Let us find our richest affair in the giver of all good gifts.
Amen.